Welcome to This Week in Local, a Locology podcast featuring lively conversations about the local digital ecosystem, hosted by Locology analysts Mike Bolin and Charles Lachlan. Hi, everyone. It's Mike Bolin, Senior Analyst at Locology. And for this episode of This Week in Local, we're doing something different. We're launching a series within the weekly flow of episodes that will pluck the best content from Locology's L23 conference, which took place recently in San Diego. So today we're featuring our onstage fireside chat with Unity Global Head of Retail Solutions, Sarah Oberst. So uh, a lot of people don't know that Unity actually has a sizable services business. Um, So there's about 800 of us globally uh, working to deliver custom solutions built with Unity's technology to clients in the games and the enterprise space. On the enterprise side, we're broken into sectors. So we have ATM, retail, AECO, and government, and I lead our retail sector. Mm -hmm. So let's also sort of define this a little bit. So one of Unity's sort of core products and what it's mostly known as is sort of in the gaming world as what we call a game engine. And it has really democratized the process and the workflows of creating 3D assets, creating 3D interactions and the things that game designers do. And more and more that is being sort of applied to a broader concept of 3D in brand experiences. And we've seen that over the last year or two with some of the sort of excitement around the metaverse and companies that sort of, you know, build a brand experience or a virtual store in a place like Fortnite or Roblox. Um, And this plays out in a number of different ways. But there's a lot of people out there that think, and I'm one of them, that, that this concept of a game engine or 3D creation will be as pervasive and as core to any sort of brand that we now see in functions like CRM and payroll and things like that. It's just going to be a key asset. So, so with that sort of um, preface, tell us a little bit more about you know the concept of a game engine or a 3D creation engine, how Unity started, how it got to this point, and you know how that affects your your job role. Yeah. So great point about sort of the prevalence, mm-hmm. and I mean that's the reason why I came to Unity from IBM is I really do believe that real time 3D uh, is going to sort of be the next mobile. Uh, in terms of brand transformation and uh, reaching consumers and creating delightful experiences. Um, So a game engine, or I really prefer to sort of refer to it as a real-time 3D engine, um, but it's a, you know, a a piece of technology that allows creators to uh, build interactive, sort of asynchronous 3D content. Um, So Unity is great because we have, uh, particularly in retail, we're, we're, we're well served by our legacy in games because it's also really broad across the device ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So you've got this asynchronous, sort of immersive, interactive 3D uh, experience that you can deliver on any device. So we're the largest mobile game engine in the world. So every mobile game that you play, I can guarantee is built with Unity's engine, whether it's Pokemon or Words with Friends or Candy Crush or what have you. Um, So we've kind of, you know, owned that mobile ecosystem. Um, Obviously also laptops, you know, gaming computers, uh, but laptops, just your laptop, no fancy, you know, graphics card, Um, headsets. So the whole, you know, hands-free, heads up, uh, device ecosystem were were there. We're Hololens's biggest partner, a uh, huge partnership with Meta, but um, and then gaming consoles as well. So, um, you know, if you think about 
where retail consumers are, they're on all of those yep. devices. And it's a huge differentiator for Unity's engine that we really own that ecosystem across the board. A lot of our competitors started with AAA console games. Sure. And so they really don't do mobile very well. Um, and so we're kind of shot out ahead of them by about a decade. Mm -hmm. Now, taking lead from what's happening in the gaming world, as it transitions into opportunities for brands, mm -hmm. let's sort of ground this in some tangible examples. And we've talked about a few of those. Some of you, some of them you've all heard of, like, for example, product try-ons, having a 3D model, a pair of shoes, a pair of sunglasses through sort of an AR interface. That's, that's just one. Mm -hmm. There's others. I mentioned one such as a brand, you know, establishing a space, a branded space within a place like Fortnite or Roblox or some of these 3D synchronous environments. That's probably another one. So let's go through all the examples of the ways that you're working with brands to help them get more 3D. Great. So we have, uh, I mean, really, you know, the use cases are endless, but there are three primary use cases that we're serving um, as priorities for retail clients right now. So the first one is, just as you mentioned, that sort of digital overlay on the physical world, the AR try-on of my Gucci handbag, the, you know, eBay try-on of my vintage Jordans, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Ikea app, sort of try this chair in my house, make sure it looks good, um, and so on and so forth. The second one is, once you have those 3D assets, the, the digital twin of your physical product, you might as well use it as yep. much as you can, right? You would get your money's worth. So we have uh, a solution called virtual photography. So I'm sure a lot of you guys know social media marketing. It is a content-hungry beast. It is hard to feed. Yep. So we have essentially a 3D master model inside a tool called Forma. You can then bring in all kinds of variants, color, texture, uh, customization, accessories, getting sort of added on. Um, and you can configure a net new product with all those variations applied to it. And then you can either export that as a file you can use for AR or high resolution still. Yep. Um, and so you can kind of, you know, little 360 3D spinner on your PDP page, yep. um, all that kind of good stuff. So virtual photography is huge. You can also shoot it on a virtual environment background. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have an eyewear company. They sort of make all the eyeglasses in the world for every brand in Italy. They didn't want to pay to go shoot models on yep. the beach in Turks and Caicos and then on the street in Venice and then, you know, on the runway in Paris. So, you know, we're working to create not only digital human models for them with the virtual 3D eyeglasses on them, but then all of these backgrounds where yeah. they want to shoot those. And as you can imagine, it saves tens of millions of dollars mm -hmm. um, a year. And then as you mentioned as well, those sort of virtual showrooms, virtual stores, um, those are, are really fun and uh, engaging, immersive, great place for uh, product education. We actually built a Dyson virtual store for Meta. Uh, for the Quest 2. And uh, Dyson, you know, kind of shares their customer relationship with that third-party retailer. Mm. There's a small handful of Dyson boutiques across the world. They all closed down during mm. COVID. So they came to us and they were like, we're sick of sharing this client, this customer relationship. Bed Bath & Beyond just is not handling our premium brand very well. Yep. We'd really like to sort of forge that relationship one-to-one. 
It helps with post post-purchase support. It helps us sell that next, you know, item to that customer. It helps us explain why we're asking them to shell out 800 bucks for a vacuum when they could pay 200 for the shark sitting next to it at, you know, uh, Target. So, you know, we built this virtual Dyson environment um, and we weren't limited to the confines of the physical world. And, you know, Dyson's engineering and, and all the, you know, the goodness that goes into those products that make them premium, that make them worth that money, can be learned about, experimented with, um, experienced uh, in, in a really compelling way. And it's helping to sort of forge that one-to-one -one relationship with that consumer. So. so a few more points on the business case. Mm -hmm. um, I um, have worked with a company called CG Trader in the past, and they do a lot of digital scans of like, you know, this chair, for example. Um, and they did a, a really cool case study where they compared the cost of a photo shoot. Mm -hmm. And those photo shoots are expensive, yes. right? And you need to get, you know, all of this granular sort of texture, detail, and all these other things. When you're dealing with a 3D model, not only is that cheaper because you don't have to have a physical photo shoot somewhere, but then you can work on variants of color and texture. And next year's models, you don't have to do the whole thing over again if the design hasn't changed. Um, and then on the sort of AR try-on front, I've been doing a lot of case studies with companies like Snap, um, where the, you know, well, to, it, it sort of works on two levels. One is the sort of conversions are higher because it is a more enticing sale, um, a more informed and confident consumer. And then for that same reason, a major retail pay, pain point is returns. The returns go way down when you have that more confident purchase. You know it's going to fit. The TV's going to fit on the wall. That IKEA couch is going to fit where you want it to go. The sunglasses fit on your face because you tried it dimensionally. So, $550 billion. In returns, yeah. In lost revenue from returns in 2022. Yeah. For retailers. And, and Amazon has sort of created this race to the bottom where, you know, yeah. by giving free returns, everyone else for competitive reasons has sure. to do it. So it really costs companies a lot. So that, it, that it, speaks to them. Not only does it cost the companies a lot, it's costing the environment a lot. Yeah. So we're doubling the logistics of that product. Yeah. Which, you know, we have a lot of luxury clients uh, based in Paris. They've all signed the Paris Climate Accord. Mm -hmm. um, you know, fashion industry in general is, is sort of the, the biggest offender of yeah. any industry, like even manu like hard good manufacturing um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, just environmental impact of their, yeah. their workflows and their processes, the chemicals that they use. So, you know, anything we can do to make it easier to support the purchase decision, mm -hmm. you know, get them to click sooner as opposed to having it sit in the cart, increase that cart size, obviously, because I have more confidence, mm -hmm. uh, but then also make sure that it doesn't make its way all the way back to the warehouse, wherever that yeah. may be. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, decreasing the, the amount of revenue lost, increasing the amount of revenue um, by increasing that cart size, and then really like, trying to tamp down those emissions. Yeah. The other sort of impetus for this, too, is a lot of companies don't realize it, but they already have 3D models. Anyone who is manufacturing a product, there's yeah. something somewhere in your building yeah. where there's a CAD file. Uh -huh. And it's not necessarily optimized for mobile, but it's like you already have the makings, the foundation for that 3D model. So sometimes the, the points of resistance are that, like, engineering is not talking to marketing. Right. But <laughs> so, so do you see that? Or I guess maybe let me phrase a broader question around that is, you know, even we're talking about all these value propositions. 
what are the sort of points of resistance or mm -hmm. friction? I mean, this is a no-brainer, everyone, but still the penetration's somewhat low. We're at the early stages of this. So what is the resistance? Data and content. Okay. Yeah, so just as you said, if they're a manufacturer of a product, who knows how many hands are touching that file, that CAD file, once it leaves engineering and makes its way all the way across the product lifecycle to the CMO? Who knows how they're reorganizing, recategorizing, sure. taking metadata out, putting metadata in. Um, and in order to really automate the process of translating from a CAD model to a 3D, photorealistic 3D asset, yeah. really has a lot to do with how good of a shape your data house is in, yep. uh, because otherwise we can't automate it, and if we can't automate it, it's just not feasible. Sure. If you're talking about you know a hundred thousand SKUs, yeah, uh, with seasonal turnover, right? Um, so data super expensive, um, and then generating, creating net new content. So if we're not talking about creating a digital twin of an existing real world physical product. We're talking about creating some sort of a fantastical, dreamlike, perfume ad sort of world uh, that I can put my quest on and I can enjoy and your brand can delight me and, yep. you know, reinforce that sort of aspiration and, and indulgence, right? Mm -hmm. Well, those worlds aren't, they don't come cheap. Oh, like, right. we've got technical artists that we bill out at, like, $500 an hour. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, you know, so what I think Unity's most excited about right now is, like, the elephant in the room, right? There's Metaverse, and there's 3D, and then there's generative AI yep. and large language models, right? So what we're most excited about as we start to see this revolution really take hold and take shape is it's going to eliminate those two massive barriers to entry. Um, no longer are our clients going to have to sort of pony up for a big front-loaded investment uh, in terms of getting their data together um, and, and then, you know, generating content as needed. Uh, we, can, we can do a lot of that with, with AI. I mean, ChatGPT is really good at writing Python scripts. And, and that's all the data cleanup is, yeah. is, a, is a, you know, a series of Python scripts. So I want to circle back to a lot of the AI stuff. That certainly factors in here. Um, but one thing that I'm wondering is who owns this within an organization? Like when you go to one of your clients, who's your main POC that is then trying to marshal all of their resources in order to do all those things you mentioned? And like, will there be... Is there a new position forming? Is it is it sort of under the CMO? Is it like well we have some companies have chief metaverse officers. That's very rare these I'm days. Working but working with one in Paris right now. Yeah. So um, from from an HR perspective, how is this yeah. happening? So um, I think two things. So uh, we deal with this sort of intersection of CTO CMO yeah. most often. Um, so we're not just generating sort of you know fun consumer experiences and you know quest virtual stores and things like that. We're doing really sort of pragmatic innovation for these retailers. So, you know, uh, one of the largest pharmacy chains uh, in the world we're working with uh, to eliminate what they call dark stores, which is where they do all of their merchandising, planogram, and store design. They actually spend tens of millions of dollars a year to maintain mm -hmm. fake but real physical versions of their stores yep. where they can move shelves around, move end caps around, move signage around. They can bring their vendors and their manufacturers the art of in merchandising, right? And, and figure out the merchandising plans. Yeah. And they were spending um, like $5 million a year just on flights. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so creating a, a digital twin of that pharmacy store 
and then you know creating a hyper visual 3D layer of their planogram software so we're not designing stores in flat 2D or some of them even Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> Um, where you can really, if I move this shelving unit or I move this end cap in real time because it's bi-directional, yeah. uh, on an iPad, you know, my, my uh, chief of stores or, or my regional managers who are responsible for maintaining that merchandising can see what I'm moving around. They can see that I'm putting, you know, the shampoo here and it's all completely, you know, millimeter accurate yeah. um, in real time, in 3D, super visual. You know, your mind can can conceive of what's going on, and you can make smarter decisions. Uh, Kellogg's did that, I think, with Accenture. There's a case study I read once where um, they did a fully uh, virtual space yep. in terms of product placement, shelf placement, mm -hmm. um, and they were able to not only save costs but the sort of VR-based uh, testing where they For had packaging. consumers go through. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was great because they could also test like biometrics, eye tracking, yep. where your eye is going on the shelf. Uh, but to, I guess the main point is to do that in a virtual environment mm -hmm. um, is very cost efficient. Now, um, you've already gone through a few great examples. Any other sort of show rather than tell client examples of how they're running with this in various directions? Of course, there's many different flavors of this sort of um, opportunistic use of, of 3D technologies, but pick any one. Okay, uh, so we do have a, uh, a luxury jewelry manufacturer uh, based in France. Um, we have another one based in Switzerland. They kind of have the same uh, use case, but it really, it's, it's that um, I need an asset, we call it an asset generation pipeline. Okay. So they are manufacturing, they are designing in CAD. So we want to translate from our design team uh, into a photorealistic version of this $200,000 watch or this, you know, half million dollar necklace. Um, and we want to be able to use those assets for a multitude of use cases, ones that we know we have right now, like our website and social media and print advertisements with that virtual photography, yep. um, to uh, store design and uh, price per square foot maximization. So once we've sort of designed one of their boutiques, we can uh, set you know digital twins of the jewelry into the cases. We can run simulations. We can run hundreds of thousands of simulations overnight in a 3D store environment to tell you sort of the best way to maximize your store footprint. Um, and then, you know, in the future, uh, Metaverse, uh, we, we did actually just recently, uh, we're getting ready to launch a, a WeChat Metaverse game uh, for that, for one of those brands um, because of big uh, customer bases in China. Um, but, you know, when Apple's headset comes out, you know, we want to be able to do AR try when. on. The keyword when. <laughs> You know, um, and, uh, you know, as phones get better as well, you know, just being able to sort of try that engagement ring on and yeah. and have it um, anchor using AI mm -hmm. to to the part of the body that that I'm wearing it on and things like that. So um, they're investing ahead, you know, a, sort of in tandem with some right now use cases, but really ahead yeah. of their tomorrow use cases, um, because once you have the asset pipeline set yep. up, you have those Python scripts, uh, you're, you're kind of good to go and, and it gets really cheap and easy. And the interesting thing there too is the use cases and the, the ways that brands are adopting this aren't just sort of the user facing ones. Those are the ones we hear about most. I mean, just the, all the testing mm -hmm. and the asset pipeline optimization is really where I think it's gonna move the needle. Now, um, let's go back to the, the magical word of the day, AI. Mm -hmm. um, 
obviously a lot of great sort of integration possibilities here. I mean, one of Unity's original value propositions is sort of democratizing and streamlining that flow for creators to build these 3D worlds, 3D interactions. And now it seems like there's even more opportunity to sort of like take care of all the rote background imagery or whatever, and they can just focus on the actual like creative parts. The storyline. Yeah, the storylines, things like that. The user so, need. So what are the other things? You, you mentioned just the, the, the large language models, how those are expanding. What are all the ways that you're excited about AI you know, at Unity? So Unity uh, believes that the world is a better place with more creators in it. Yep. And you know, like I said at the beginning of the talk, we really focused uh, from the very beginning on those sort of indie, uh, you know, uh, game developers working in their in their parents' basement, right? Yep. Um, and and the whole goal was to to democratize democratize uh, game building, mm -hmm. so that more people's imaginations could be brought to life and more people could enjoy and be delighted by those experiences on a device that was affordable and already in their pocket, right? You didn't have to shell out for like the Sony PlayStation in order to access a Unity game and have some fun. So, you know, we bring that ethos really forward into everything that we do, um, even on the enterprise side. So, you know, I work with a lot of um, e-commerce, marketing team, you know, people that have never written a line of code in their life and really would prefer not to. Right. And I don't blame them because I'm the same way. Um, and what we're going to be able to do now is no code creation tools, uh, just using a really good LLM, yeah. you know, large language model. And if it's in your mind and you can type it or you can say it, Unity can generate it in real-time 3D and we can bring it to uh, the broadest amount of devices and therefore the broadest number of eyeballs um, than any other engine. Yeah. Now, speaking of the sort of democratization and like the, the you know, the guy in his basement, mm -hmm. um, one of the topics that always sort of traces, we trace it back to it, shows like this, is small businesses. Yeah. And we often, we love to talk about technologies like this because it's always the leading indicator of sort of what will trickle down. Um, so where do you see that going in terms of small businesses being able to do, you know, any of this? Unity's uh, making huge investments in uh, SMBs. Uh, and bringing real-time 3D technology not only to SMBs but to like prosumers, yeah. uh, so like Etsy, um, eBay. You know, oh, if sure. you think about that. Yeah. Um, so we actually we do have a, a mobile capture technology. So with your phone right now today, uh, you can you know capture images of you know an item uh, that you want to create a digital. Uh, twin of, and we can in post processing completely automated, um, extremely low code, not no code yet. We don't have the the AI running fully yet. Yep. Uh, that's actually coming really soon. We do have a beta, um, but low code. So you know, an Etsy prosumer could probably do it. You know, she takes you know a certain number of walks her through a certain number of photos of the vase. Photogrammetry essentially. It's photogrammetry, but it's handheld on your yeah. on your iPhone, um, and then we can. Post-process that, uh, fully automated, takes about 20 minutes um, to do the processing, and you'll have a photorealistic 3D model of that vase yeah. uh, that she can put on her Etsy store that I can, you know, when I'm at home, I can try it in AR on my, on my coffee table to make sure mm -hmm. that it's going to fit and I'm going to like it. Um, so we've already made huge investments to sort of put this tech in the hands of uh prosumers and SMBs and and the AI that we're working on I mean all of all of our investment we are laser focused on 
yeah. the further democratization, um, making it cost-effective, fast, and no code. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. We spend a lot of time looking at how these adoption patterns happen for SMBs or even, even brands at, at earlier stages upstream. And often the progression is um, sort of adoptive or early adoptive brands will be first to do it, some mm -hmm. of the clients you mentioned. Um, and then slowly from doing that, it becomes an expectation. Yeah. Of, of the customer, of the shopper, right? And then their competitors sort of have to mm -hmm. rise to that level because of that expectation. Yeah. Um, so I think that, and the first step, tracing it back even further, the first step is a unity providing the tools to get that first brand excited. And then the tipping point happens when that like level of expectation happens. And I always look back to sort of digital photography. I used this example earlier, so sorry if this is repetitive, but you know, digital photography in e-commerce. Mm -hmm. You know, 10 years ago, it wasn't as ubiquitous or table stakes, but it got to the point where if you don't have on your Amazon listing images from every angle and even like a 3D spinner, then you're sort of at a disadvantage. Yeah. Um, so are, are you guys sort of projecting forward in sort of your business plans and product rollouts in terms of like, you know, there will become a day three, three years from now, five years from now, whatever it is, where it's just sort of table stakes and ubiquitous to just have 3D as part of a marketing plan. I think we're already there. Yeah. I mean, you know, over the last few years, I've really seen our clients uh, shift from, you know, VP of innovation to, you know, VP of e-com. Yep. <laughs> uh, and so the budgets aren't coming from innovation anymore. Mm. Uh, they have sort of matured uh, into uh, just, you know, OpEx or yeah. CapEx, depending on what we're building. So um, that's that's been great to see. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I think we've kind of, and AI is just going to accelerate all this, right? But uh, I think we've already sort of emerged from uh, the, the darker corners of innovation teams into critical, you know, fundamental infrastructure level uh, workflows. Yeah. Um, and uh, the expectation of the consumer uh, w was running way ahead of that even, yeah. you know. So uh, everyone has a, a smartphone in their pocket. Um, the numbers, you know, and the saturation globally, uh, even in, you know, third world markets in terms of, you know, smartphone usage uh, are get hitting massive saturation points, like 80, 90 percent, I think. Um, we've got a, a major tipping point with demos with millennials and Gen Z. Um, and we've also seen sort of dis uh, disposable income kind of sharply yep. drop. So as these consumers that are this younger demo um, who are already gamers and you know, interactive, immersive, ex experienced people um, are being more discretionary about how they spend their money. The expectation is I will spend on a brand that gives me an experience that yep. makes me feel like I belong, that makes me feel good, that delights me. Um, and it's sort of a, a shift almost from, from these hard quantitative KPIs um, around the e-com, the marketing team, to some more of the qualitative stuff yeah. because you're starting to see some of the softer qualitative data is what's really pushing the purchase. Yeah, and you bring up a good point too that you know Gen Z, gamers, um, camera natives, as yeah. they sort of cycle into the adult consumer buying empowered population, mm -hmm. you know, that's going to be another thing that accelerates all this. Uh, so we're about out of time, but just the last question, what's sort of your, your advice for like the first steps for any brand that you're working with or any brand out there? This may seem sort of intimidating is getting into the world of 3D. What's the best thing to do sort of just, you know, first steps to, you know, get 3D ready 
Yeah. Uh, you know, work on maybe walk down the hall to engineering and find out if you do have that CAD model or what are the what are the things they could be doing today? Well, I mean, I think really thinking about user need. I mean, the the AR try on is is a great sort of user need use case. It was it was born out of um, some serious pain points for the brands, but you know, which started as serious pain point for the customer. Yep. How do I know this thing is really going to fit? Yes, it's my size. Okay, I see the measurements. I understand the numbers, kind of. People don't usually, but you know, how's it going to fit me? Yeah. Um, so you know, you've got to start with the user need, and I, I see you know, while an asset in you know generation pipeline is really core and foundational to powering all of these different use cases across the business, I think we often see clients coming in with one use case that's solving a major pain point and yeah. that kind of walks us back into infrastructure. Yep. Um, so, you know, product configurators, how many different ways is there to configure my product and does, does my customer really get that? Yeah. Am I really getting the maximum amount of accessories, you know, sold with that first sell? Um, Dyson, do I, ha do I actually have a relationship with my customer? Do they understand why this vacuum costs so much more? This hairdryer costs so much more than my competitors? Am I educating them? Are they yeah. making complete and informed purchase decisions? Um, you know, so find that pain point and then think about how you know, getting your customers like hands um, in the metaverse or whatever digitally uh, on that product and in interacting with it could alleviate some of that pain and move my brand forward. That's yeah. that's the win. Great advice and fascinating stuff. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Locology's This Week in Local with Mike Boland and Charles Lachlan. Be sure to subscribe for more.